Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. You gotta work on the business. You can't put all your eggs on the technical customer service side because working on the business is just as important. Melody Geist of Rideout, Barrett and Company joined us for this week's episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting. As you'll hear not just in that clip, but really throughout this whole interview, Melanie is very open and transparent about her career journey. If you're just starting to consider accounting as a career, or if you're on the other side and you're considering merging your practice with another firm, this podcast will be valuable to you. Melanie's done a lot and in only a few years. In fact, you'll hear her mention the 40 Under 40 Award near the end of the podcast. That's an award that the local business journal gives to rising stars that have achieved extraordinary business accomplishments while still under the age of 40 years old. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to visit our home website as well at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for other similar interviews with everyday heroes in the accounting world. That's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. I think that's enough for the intro. Without further ado, here we go. Good afternoon. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. I know that there really isn't any time of year that's not busy these days. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Mark. I know we've, I think for the last month, we've tried to connect on this. So I'm glad we're finally both sitting down and able to chit chat for a little bit. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, Both of us have been a little busy. Well, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a few reasons. First of all, you're the only accountant I know that was actually in the Peace Corps, which it's just sort of cool, you know? Uh, <laughs> but then you built a practice as well and you know, eventually went through the process of having your partner retire and then merging you know, into a larger practice. And I don't remember the exact timeline, but I think that was all within a year or two of each other. And that's, that's pretty amazing. I'd like to start with how you decided to become an accountant in the first place, though, your, your backstory, so to speak, so people can get an idea of who Melanie is. If you could take us back to when you decided to look into accounting as a career in the first place, how did all that arise? It's interesting because I look back on my life and I, I wonder myself sometimes still how, how did my skill set, my talents, my strengths get me to this place? And there's things, you know, hindsight 2020, I mean, we understand things in, in reverse sometimes so much better than when it's happening when we're going through the process. But I will tell you, I go back to seventh grade. It started seventh grade, Mr. McCracken's class, and it was math, Mr. McCracken's math class. 
And I used to ask questions that I sat on the front row. I always knew how to do. I knew always knew how to answer the question. I didn't even have to do the homework. The total math nerd. But I would ask questions that kept everyone else in the glass. They would understand it, and then I would keep asking questions. And then, would you just shut up, Melanie? We understood it till you started talking. <laughs> so my my teacher said, "You're going to be a teacher one day." And I was I, seventh grade. I was 12 years old. So no, I'm not. I'm not going to be a teacher. Oh, yes, you are. You're going to be a teacher one day. No, I'm not. I'm not going to be a teacher one day. That's No, that's not me. I'm not going to teach. And so that's, for some reason, I don't know why that stayed with me. And then I started paying attention to what I liked and what I didn't like as I went through, as I went through junior high, the rest of junior high and high school, because around about the time I was in eighth grade, which would have been, I guess, late, gosh, late 80s. I guess late 80s when I was a teenager, and they forced us to start thinking about what do you want to do when you're older. And I remember everybody around me, my, my peers at the time, no one really knew. And I don't know why. I didn't like science. I didn't like history. I didn't like English, meaning I didn't like, I was doing a lot of writing, and I didn't enjoy writing. I wasn't creative, but I always appreciated the kids in the class that, that knew how to write well. So for some reason, I always was bent towards accounting, logic, rationalization, and at the time was math. And I tell another funny story about earlier in my life, but for some reason, I was clued into white-collar crime. I guess reading mystery novels at the time, and I was wanting to be the good guy, making sure the bad guy we were able to figure out what he was doing wrong and putting it behind bars. I don't really know what my process was at the time, but I wanted to work for the FBI. Bottom line, I wanted to work for the FBI. Wow. And I went all the way through, went all the way through high school telling people I was going to get my accounting degree, get sit for the CPA exam so I could apply and work for the FBI. I mean, I went all the way through high school telling people that. And I had a slight detour off course for a while. I did real well in economics. I did real well in chemistry thought I might want to major in economics or chemistry. And once I got to college, I didn't like either one of those classes anymore. So I stuck with accounting and I got to the first principles class. And it, it, and the funny thing is, is I wasn't sure. I, I can't tell you that, oh, I knew what debits and credits were. I didn't, I didn't know what debits and credits were. And I got to accounting, my first principles of accounting class, and the teacher taught principles of accounting and taught general ledger and doing the transactions across the green sheets, if you will, if anybody even understands that terminology anymore, from playing Monopoly. She literally oh. taught, we, we literally played Monopoly in that class. And so every, everything that happened around the board, you had to record whatever the transaction was, revenue, cash, or expense. And you had to record it on both sides, a balance sheet, income statement, and then you had to do your totals at the bottom. And that's all it took for me in that very first principles class. Like, oh my gosh, this makes sense, and I'm good at this. I can do this without studying because I didn't like to study. So that that was from a what is my degree going to be? That cemented it because I at the time I was still I was still juggling. Do I want to do chemistry and go into pharmacy? Do I want to do economics? And I could I, I just knew for some reason that I can, you know that the accounting made made more sense to me at the time than the other two. So. So get an accounting degree and then I mean, went, to, went to a junior college. So that, that part was a little bit different for me. 
I wanted my parents didn't have money in a savings account to pay for my college. So I was able to get a scholarship at a junior college in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So I went three semesters at a junior college before entering the University of Alabama. And back in the mid 90s, there was that change to have the additional hours before you could sit for the CPA exam. So this was there's this immediate talk on you got to get your master's, you got to get your master's. And then public accounting, public accounting, public accounting. And that's all I knew was public accounting from an education or attending classes or my professors talking about it. And I took pretty quickly for some reason at Alabama, I started doing, I did some work studies with my income tax professors, Dr. Michael Roberts, I remember his name. He, he had me do some work study for him, and it was tax research. And I really enjoyed, here's your issue, find the research and tell me how you're going to solve the problem or what's your fact pattern and how do you mirror your fact pattern against the research that you're finding. And I just, for some reason, as I, as I went along in my junior and senior year, I enjoyed tax so much more than the audit and the financial accounting side. So I got a job while I was in college working for an enrolled agent doing bookkeeping. And gosh, at 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, I was already doing 941s and bank reconciliations. And he taught me very quickly on how the bank reconciliation had to tie back to the general ledger and my credit card reconciliations had to tie back to the general ledger. He taught me how to reconcile 941 tax returns, taught me how to reconcile 941s to the W-2, the W-3 at the end of the year. And I got that solid bookkeeping. And I don't even think I I didn't even appreciate it at the time. But I got that solid foundation in bookkeeping. And it's funny, in hindsight, I talked about hindsight earlier. I can see now. I, 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 I took to it so well, I could get through clients pretty quickly and with complete accuracy. I mean, I sound may sound arrogant, but with complete accuracy because I was constantly ticking and tying the work that I was completing for him. So I got public accounting experience, even at an enrolled agent level, very quickly before I even graduated from college. And I ended up being able to use that as an internship. I got some college credit for it. And just the working with the client that I didn't know it at the time, but I started understanding why that entrepreneurial base of clients was something I quickly, I don't know how else to say it, but to say that I took to it, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the interaction with the gentleman I was working with. I enjoyed the interaction with the clients and, and talking to them about the work we were performing. And, and I didn't ever get into income tax while I was working for him, but it, but it definitely, the bookkeeping you know, it's just, it's like when you, it's like when the light bulb goes off, bookkeeping definitely, and the accounting, even at that level, I mean, the light went off for me, I understood it. Okay. How did so, you end up working with the Peace Corps? How did I end up in the Peace Corps? So, so that was, so the, so your goal, you know, or the goal at the time in the, in the mid nineties, I graduated from college in 98, mid to late nineties, it was, you got to get your, you got to go to grad school, you got to go to grad school, you got to go to grad school. And I, for some reason, I had this professor, Lonnie Strickland, in college that was my business strategy professor. And he he used to talk in class about how, you know, what are you going to do the rest of your life? Come talk to me if you want to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Let's brainstorm. Let's talk about it. And at the time, I, I just, I don't know why, but I went and talked to him about it. And I go into his office and he says, well, what are you going to do the rest of your life? You know, I know to look at him. I said, well, I guess I'm going to grad school and eventually sit for the CPA exam and I'm going to prepare tax returns the rest of my life. I mean, 
that's as far as I have been able to, it's as far down the line as I can see. And he says, well, why don't you do something different? He said, grad school's always going to be there. You can always sit for the CPA exam. He says, why don't you try something like the Peace Corps? And I went, what is the Peace Corps? You know, small town girl from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I guess I had heard of the Peace Corps, but I'd never really, I mean, I'd never really put any thought into it. He says, well, you know, it's this do-gooder program where you can, you know, go to another country and dance on tables when you're having a good time. (laughs) So, yeah, that's how he sold it to me. I thought, okay, dance on tables. He said, oh, you're going to have to decide, is you going to wear the red dress or the blue dress? And that's always been our joke ever since. That's been our joke. So I go back to the um, student the computer lab, and literally, at the time, I don't guess it was Google, I don't even remember what we were using back then, Yahoo or whatever it was, but in the search engine, I do Peace Corps, probably didn't even spell it correctly, and I started reading about it, and it, it appealed to so many things that I appreciate, identifying with other cultures, learning about other cultures, and I had always, for one reason or another, I always wanted to learn another language. And I never I never really understood how I was going to go about doing that. And people had started traveling more at the time, traveling through Europe. And there was, there was no money for me sitting in a piggy bank when I graduated from college to go through Europe. I mean, I was lucky at the time that my parents were able to pay for my college tuition. But I knew it was on me after that to figure out what I wanted to do. So I started researching about Peace Corps and what type of program it would be that I could go into business, I could, I could be in a business environment in the Peace Corps in a third or fourth world country. So I ended up doing an interview in Atlanta. So I did the application, which would have been my fall of my senior year. It would have been the spring of my senior year, which was 1997, right around May of 1997. And I sent my application in, and you, we could do face-to-face interviews in Atlanta and that bookkeeper or enrolled agent I was working for at the time, their son lived in Atlanta and they connected me so that I could drive over to Atlanta and let me crash at her son's place, her son and her daughter-in-law's place the night before I had that interview. And I remember I had not told my parents I was applying for the Peace Corps, but here <laughs> I was about to go out of town. And mom's, why are you going to Atlanta? Well, I'm I'm going to apply. I'm going to get an interview for the Peace Corps. And she just about came apart because she thought I was throwing my career away. So I go over there and I do my interview and I had an option. They asked me that you could give an option as to where you wanted to go in the world of all the countries that Peace Corps is, you know, where they serve. And I was ignorant enough to say, I'll go anywhere. And uh, yeah, I did. I said, I'll go any, anywhere. And I got to tell you, Mark, I am so lucky that I got Nicaragua or that my place that I was able to go was Nicaragua. And it just, it was so perfect how it worked out because I graduated from college in May of 98. And then I literally went to Nicaragua in September. So it would have been the same time frame as had I gone to grad school immediately, I was going to be starting something new anyway. So it just, it was perfect and it worked out. And that's, so Peace Corps is the long-winded version of even how I got to San Antonio because I ended up meeting some people that were from San Antonio through my, through that experience. And it's, it's funny, just today, you know, that experience, so I was in the Peace Corps from 1998 to 2000, so it was a little over two years from beginning to end. And just today, 
there, I have a, you know, we all have text messages and group text messages now with all our buddies. I've got, there's five of us on a group text message that we, that five core, like what I consider my core friends from that experience that we still get together once a year. And here, 20 years later, I mean, almost 20 years later, I mean, we're still the closest friends. So it was just a phenomenal experience for me, which is how I ultimately got to San Antonio. Well, now, I, I may be missing something very obvious, but some of our listeners may as well. You said you were lucky you got Nicaragua. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was a vacation destination. That's you know, you made that comment, you missed something, and I'm already beating myself up for not being a good good storyteller or not giving good explanations. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't see that one coming at all, Mark. So... The climate, first of all, the climate is warm and it's not freezing, so I didn't have to take a bunch of coats and blue jeans and layers and, you know, lots of tennis shoes. I didn't have to take that with me in my suitcase. It's still Western civilization, so... There's still democracy, if if you will, their their form of democracy, not so much now as it was when I was there. Flight wasn't that far. It's about a, it's about a three hour flight out of Houston, so I in a pinch. Not that I had to come home in a pinch, but in a pinch I could come home. Spanish, I could speak Spanish. It wasn't like I was learning some African language okay. that I wouldn't eventually use. And and it's funny because you're. Everything you said is right. Why? Why did I get lucky? And, and it's hard to explain, but once you get there and you start understanding how beautiful the people are and how friendly and hospitable and open, I mean, just literally, they're just, it's a lovely culture and they opened up, you know, welcomed us with open arms is the correct way to say that. It, it just, it made me feel so lucky that I had said I would go anywhere and I lucked up and was able to get Nicaragua, notwithstanding the wonderful friendships that I established with my fellow Americans, other Peace Corps volunteers during during my service. Okay. Well, and, and that all makes perfect sense. Just, you, you know, you tend to think ahead <laughs> a little bit. And when you said, I was lucky I got, you know, in my mind I was playing Hawaii or, <laughs> yeah, you had already, you already had me in Fiji or something. Yeah, yeah. you had me in Fiji. It wasn't, it wasn't quite that good, but it was good. And I had, oh, I lived in a small town and, you know, had to shower outside and use the facilities outside. So it was, it was the real, real deal agrarian, wow. you know, culture for sure. Okay. And you said that ultimately led you to the connections that got you to San Antonio. Are those the connections that got you into public accounting? Is that how that it is? They, it's the exact, that's the exact connection. So Stephanie Porter had just graduated from law school at St. Mary's and she as well chose to go into the Peace Corps and she was in my group. So I met her in Miami and we're talking because we meet in Miami before we fly over to Nicaragua together. And I just got to know her in the first, in the beginning, we go through training. We go through training and we're with people at Spanish training the first three months that we're there. And I didn't get to know her that well, but then where they placed us three months into our service, when they finally send you to your site, they placed us very close to each other in the northern part of Nicaragua. And I got to know her, you know, got to know her very well. She's from San Antonio and her dad, who is Steve, my former partner, 
came down to visit in the middle, I guess, he came down to the visit the summer of 99. He was retired and going to school at UTSA. He, at that moment, he was retired. He had retired colonel from the Army. Oh. He was an attorney as well. And he was going, he was attending the Master of Taxation, was getting his Master of Taxation at UTSA. And he was taking the summer off from school. And he and Stephanie had plans of opening an accounting firm post Peace Corps. And because, and I didn't see him every day, but when we were, you know, hanging out together, if you will, the three of us, you know, on weekends or whatever it was, because he lived there for about three months. He lived in another town where he studied Spanish as well, went to school and studied Spanish. He was talking to me about moving to San Antonio and going to work with him and Stephanie to run this accounting firm. I mean, I was 22, 23 at the time thinking, I don't even know what they're talking about, you know, and I just said, sure, sure, sure. And um, and he talked about, you can go to UTSA, they offer their classes at night, you get your master's at UTSA, and then you sit for the CPA exam. And I didn't think anything of it. It was, as far as I was concerned at the time, it was all talk. It's just what you sit around and chit-chat about when you don't have anything else to talk about. And they were serious. I mean, lo and behold, they were serious. So I returned from Peace Corps in November of 2000. And I was looking for grad. I was looking to go to grad school again. I was like, okay, I need to get a job. Now I got to get a job, and I got to go to grad school. And I had talked to Alabama. I had talked to Auburn, thinking I was going to stay in Alabama. And Steve and Stephanie had opened an office off Days of Allah, and I came out here over Thanksgiving. I think it was November 2000. I came to San Antonio. Never been out here before. I didn't even. You know, it didn't even cross my mind. This is where the Alamo was. That's how ignorant I was at the time about San Antonio or Texas. And then the following February, they, I mean, they were serious. They picked up the phone and called me and they said, come out here. I mean, you can, you can live with us for a while till you figure out where you want to live and you can start UTSA in the fall. I mean, you got to do it. You might as well come out here and do it. So I did. Wow. And, and that's basically, I mean, that's basically how it happened. I didn't realize you were on board with the firm so close to its inception. I mean, had they even been open a year at that point? No, I saw it from the very beginning. Wow. I saw it from the very beginning. I saw all the marketing, you know, open the business, hang your shingle, saw it from the very beginning. And I was, in hindsight, I mean, I was so, how do you say it? I mean, you're just so young. I mean, you know how you feel. You look back in your 20s and it's shoulda, coulda, woulda, and I don't, I don't do that too much, but I see things now and I was exposed to it then, but I just didn't have the, I didn't have the depth of knowledge or the experience at the the time to understand what I was being exposed to. But I mean, I have clients today that I, I mean, I, I met those clients 2001, 2002. I mean, that's how long I've known some of these folks. Hmm. I'm curious. We know that one of the issues with people becoming or not becoming CPAs is that sometimes they wait too long to start the exam. You know, they decide to put off grad school and, or put, you know, put off that fifth year or put off taking the exam. Do you think if you wouldn't have run into Stephanie and the Peace Corps that there's a possibility you may have changed your plans along the way and not? No, I don't, I don't think, no, I don't think I would have ever changed my mind because it's funny. I didn't walk for any of my, and this is how I present it. I didn't walk for my undergrad. I didn't go to the, I didn't attend the graduation ceremony from the University of Alabama. I didn't attend the graduation ceremony from UTSA. 
by grab, I attended the graduation or that, that ceremony they gave us when we got our certificate. I was at that ceremony. That was my graduation for me personally. So I, that was the end result for me. It wasn't undergrad. It wasn't grad master's. It wasn't bachelor's. It wasn't master's. It was that ultimate CPA certificate. That was my ultimate goal. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. Now, I will say I do look back and I'm so grateful that I didn't waste any time. I mean, I don't, that Peace Corps was a minor detour that I took and just opened my brain and brain up in ways that I never could have imagined had I not done that experience. But I didn't take a detour. You know, I kept with school. I mean, it was the Peace Corps, then school, and then I kept at it, and I didn't not start studying. And I do look at resumes now. We interview candidates, people that have been school out of school for four and five years, and Uh and I'm going, have you not studied for the CPA exam? That always it does it throws me for a loop a little bit because I, I definitely that was that was my focus. Okay. So you were with Steve from day one, starting that practice. How did you guys get new clients? So there were one or two ways. I I wasn't hugely involved in the marketing part or the marketing function at the time because it was all so new to me. But there were two things. Steve used a PR firm, and I know several people in the accounting industry have heard about them out of Minnesota, New Client Seek. So he used their marketing strategy of hiring a marketing sales manager guy to call, you know, so we had we had a we had a couple of ladies that worked for us that made phone calls and set up meetings and then we had a sales manager that would actually go out on the calls and talk about the accounting services and they had a way of quoting the prices. So that was one way and I want to say Steve did that, we'll say we did that for about a year. So okay. we did that for about a year, and we did. We had, a, we had a good client base that came from that. And then number two, Steve ended up buying another practice about a year into that. Steve bought a practice. So we had, a, after he bought that practice, which was another small sole proprietor that had a little CPA firm of bookkeeping and tax client. And after about two years, we had a we had a solid practice that we were running at that point. And, and we were to a point where after that, it was mainly we were getting business through referrals. Okay. At what point did you become a partner? Or how did that process work? There was a point. It's re- really kind of funny how it happened. There was a point, let's say... A t- was going to school, sat for the exam, passed the exam, and his daughter, Stephanie, was getting less and less interested or less and less involved, interested or involved, whichever word you want to use. It, it became evident that she didn't want to do the tax side. She wanted to do the legal side and use her legal background more than she wanted to do the tax side. So, it, it was just, there were some internal things happening that I wasn't 100% privy to, but you know how you can, you can tell if you're in an organization when something's not quite right and you're thinking, something's not working here. And she wasn't, she didn't want to take, so it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is she didn't want to, it was evident she didn't want to take the business over. And Steve, we all know now, I didn't necessarily understand it at the time, but he was setting that practice up for her. And she just didn't, she just wasn't interested. 
And so I heard murmurings from Steve that he was going to sell the business because he, he didn't want to do it long term. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for her. And it's one of those things that I would sit home at night and I would start cataloging some of these conversations I felt like I was hearing in passing that no one was saying directly to me, but I was privy to them. And I thought, well, heck, why would he sell the business? I mean, I'm here. He doesn't need to sell the business. I can do this. And But I did, forgive me, Stephanie, if you're listening to me type of thing. I didn't want, Stephanie, we were just, as, as Stephanie's a good friend of mine, but professionally, you could just tell we had a different approach to the business. And sure. it just wasn't, that part didn't work. So I knew, I thought, well, well, golly, I can do this. I can run this business. I can take over this responsibility that he had expected Stephanie to take over herself. So I, I knew I could do it. I just couldn't do it with if she was going to be part of the picture. So I approached Steve and I just said, you know, Steve, I've heard you murmur in the hallway, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it. I don't know why you would sell this business. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I said, here's what I'd like to do. And I gave him my plan of what I wanted to do. And he said, okay, you're on, let's go. And then I said, my one caveat or my one stipulation is it's, Steph- it's not going to work with Stephanie here. And he said, don't worry about that and see in how at, when you're not always privy to everything that's going on in the background, you think you know everything and you don't. Mm-hmm. He said, don't worry about that. Stephanie has been applying to get a job somewhere else. She's actually planning on moving and we're just waiting for her to get accepted. She was applying for a job with the Bureau of Land Management. Once she gets on with the Bureau of Land Management, then she's not even going to be in San Antonio anymore. He said, so just hang tight. That's not really going to be an issue. He said, but that's why I wanted to sell the practice because Stephanie was leaving. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that at the time. I could tell the interest wasn't there from Stephanie, but I didn't know that she was planning on leaving. So it was a, other people can say right place at right time, or you can spin it. I mean, I was looking around at the opportunity and wanted to grab it by the horns and make it my opportunity. And that's essentially what I did. Okay. So becoming partner and then the eventual buyout of Steve's interest, that was all part of the same plan, it sounds like. To a degree, it was all part of the same plan. We didn't formally approach it that way. I think it was more of an informal approach. I all about the same time. It's it's amazing. And I have I have told other people, you know, once you pass that CPA exam, it's not so much your colleagues as your clients. There's a certain amount of respect that they understand that you're serious about the industry and the word on the street that that's not an easy test. So they know you've studied hard to pass that test. And okay. and so there was a new there was fortunately new respect from the clients and it just all became a natural fit for me. And I just slowly but surely started taking over the operation side of the business, the client interaction and the client and the work and, and the due dates and so on and so forth. That that became my my baby, if you will. Just to give us a reference point, I mean, about, about what year are we talking about? 2006. It was about 2006. Okay. So I, that would have been thir- I, would have, I would have been 30 years old at the time. Okay. When did you pass the exam? Passed the exam. I took the uh, 2003. Is when I took the. It took the last paper exam, November 2003. So I got my license in 
summer of 2004 is when I got my license from the state. Crazy fast, Mark. Yeah. Crazy fast. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> as like I said, right place, right time. And I made, I, I took, totally took advantage of the opportunity that was right in front of me. Beautiful. Okay. It worked for me, and I know it's where you are in life and, and what's what's in front of you. Now, there are some downsides, and the downsides were I wasn't making tons of money. I didn't come out of school with this idea that I wanted to make X within one to two or three years after. I was more concerned about experience okay, and work and, and, and grabbing whatever experience I could and and absorbing that experience and working. I was more concerned about what I was learning in my profession instead of, I mean, well, you got to make money. Don't get me wrong. And that's important. But I, but I was more concerned about the experience side than I was about the money side. Okay. Cause, and, and I, I just say that cause it was a small firm and there, there are things that you give up when you're, when you're with a small firm. Okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. So you, you go along and you're building this practice and maintaining it with Steve. Any, any lessons that stick out that you learned along the way or anything that you feel like you, you really did well or, or you guys really did well during that time? So as far as a tax practice is concerned, and this, this is just my limited exposure. It wasn't, it wasn't so much experience. It's the limited exposure at the time. There are certain institutions that are part of public accounting systems and procedures that are part of public accounting that you have to implement into your practice. I mean, it's the foundation of your practice. And because of starting out brand new and the fact that I started out with Steve brand new, we unfortunately, some things... How, how should I say that? What's, what am I trying to say? There's just some things we ended up skipping. There's some practices and procedures. Okay. And I don't mean that from a detrimental standpoint. I just mean it where it probably made it harder on myself from a firm management. I, I'm not talking about from a client side, but from a firm management side. I didn't install certain procedures along the way in the very beginning that as the business got older, it's just harder once you're once you're a used product or you've been you've been working in the business for ten years. Well, if I'd done that eight years ago, this would have been easier today. I don't I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. No, you are. Neither one of you had a mentor to learn from. No, and so that, at that point, yes, right at that point. And it was the business model. I think it was the business model that Steve started that we expected. You know, monthly retainers. We expected monthly retainers to pay for, to be the revenue generator for our business. And in an ideal situation, I mean, that's perfect, but it's all dependent. I didn't, we didn't, we didn't sit down and totally analyze all the external factors that play into why you have to keep that monthly retainer at a certain amount. You're constantly have to annually look at that monthly retainer and see if that monthly retainer is you're you're getting enough money to to bill for the services that you're providing to the client because I've never been short on the customer service side. I've always been an advocate and a proponent of customer service, but you know, you've just got to weigh the pros and cons 
uh, if you're doing monthly retainers, is is the monthly retainer meeting the level of service that you're you're providing to the client? So we, I don't think we did a good enough job in the beginning managing that. We, we're all good technicians. I, and I even tell my new client entrepreneurs now, you're good at what you do because you're a good technician. So those soft skills and those firm management skills, that those are the mistakes I made early on is I, I focused on what I was good at technically and I focused on improving my technical skills and, and learning the tax law and knowing the tax law and, and taking advantage of every opportunity as, as I could or present every opportunity, not take advantage of, but present every opportunity to the client. And that, that all is very important, but there's got to be a nice blend of, especially if you're in a leadership role, you, you got to work on the business. You can't put all your eggs on the technical customer service side because working on the business is just as important. Yes. There's a great book out there for new entrepreneurs. You may have heard of it. The, the E-Myth. Have you? The E as in E as an elephant myth? Yes. E is an entrepreneur myth. Entrepreneur. Oh, no. My yeah. mind, elephant. How funny. No, I haven't heard of it, or at least I don't think I've heard of it. What's it about? It talks about exactly what you were just mentioning, that you get into business because you're a good technician, but then you quickly realize that as the business grows, your job isn't just to do the technical parts anymore. You need to work on the business instead of in the business, basically. And it's a story about taking a business through that process. But it's a great book to read for new entrepreneurs. It really is. So, I'll have, um, to, I'll have to pick that one up. Yeah, the E-Myth. In fact, I think there's the E-Myth for accountants. I need to double-check that. <laughs> I believe so. I believe they made one just for us. <laughs> so you become a partner in 2006-ish time frame. You all build the practice. And then it was only a few years back, right, that Steve retired. And then shortly thereafter, you merged into Right Out Barrett. Yeah, that all happened in 2014. Oh. It all, I bought Steve out in we signed the paperwork in February of 14, and I came to write out Barrett. My first day was November 1st, 2014. So, yeah, it all, Steve and I were partners for quite a long time. I mean, not not a full 10 years. I worked with him for more than 10 years, but we were partners for quite a long time. Okay. So, so yeah, we worked through that. It was basically... We had a couple of different iterations. Steve was a little bit older. I, I, I think when he retired, I think he was 75. He, ret- he, wanted to, he finally had decided he wanted to be done the second time around on his 75th birthday. So we, <laughs> we beat his 75th birthday. And he was engaged, 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 engaged. And then somewhere about in 2013, he just decided he says, this isn't what I want to do anymore. I'm ready to travel more, spend more weekends with my wife. They, that one of their hobbies is dancing. He liked to go polka dancing and he wanted to be able to take longer trips, polka dancing. And we had already greatly reduced his work time. And so his work time, we cut down to about 20 hours a week. So he was already part-time. And Steve always gave me a lot of autonomy on decision-making with operations. And he was always a good person. You know, it's funny, you you commented on that I didn't, we didn't have business coach mentors, meaning on we didn't necessarily, neither one of us had mentors. We didn't have mentors to run the business. But 
we took our personal conservative approaches we did apply to our business model. So it wasn't as if we had ever been in any massive debt in the business. I mean, the business was always profitable, just maybe not as profitable as it could have been. So ultimately, we knew he was going to retire. So he, he was part-time and he was oh, okay. more and more part-time. We knew he was going to retire. So we just got, we got closer and closer to, and we didn't, so here at Right Out Barrett, we have, we have a buy-sell agreement. Steve and I never had a buy-sell agreement. So it all was coming to a head. Now, good, bad, or ugly, depends on which side of the fence you're standing on. I had slowly but surely, and that's the funny thing about accounting, it's all about relationships. And with me and Steve, I had established the majority of all the relationships with the clients, and I was the one getting the referrals by the time he wanted to retire. So he wanted, he wanted out. He wanted to be compensated. And it wasn't that I didn't think he needed to be compensated. I had a thought process of, well, you've been compensated. We've been paying you for the last five years, and you haven't been producing. Yes, you, you, you brought the sure. money to the table to get the business started. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you that. I'm not going to take that away from you, and you, you should get compensated. But the business was only earning so much money at the same time and earning so much money from a standpoint of what a buyout should look like. And, and, and there's all kinds of opinions on this. And I've, I've read, read the books and I see what the books say. So when the rubber hit the road, he wrote a number on a piece of paper and I wrote a number on a piece of paper. And I, and I just I looked at him and I said, our numbers are so far off, we might as well just forget it. I mean, where are we going to ever meet in the middle on this? So I ended up contacting David Sweeten, actually, business broker David Sweeten. And I just I just called him and talked to him because I needed a non-biased third party that I could talk to and that would sit down and talk to both of us and that I knew would be more like a mediator. And I, and I needed to know if my thought process in how I was going to buy Steve out and what the number I had in my mind, if that you know, because I had a number and I felt like that was a number that was a correct number to pay him. Sure. So I had talked to David Sweeten and then Steve and I sat down with David Sweeten and David basically, I don't even remember all of what David said, but it basically, basically said to Steve, I mean, the unfortunate part is, yeah, I mean, she's the one that has all the She's got all the relationships now. She's the one working with the clients, good, bad, or ugly. I mean, you backed away from that role, and you were just doing more of the firm management side as far as the administration for the last two to three years. So we ended up coming to an agreement. I mean, we were both reasonable. At some point, we finally got into a room, and I said X, and he said, I'll take it. And then I said, how about you take this much money right now as a down payment, and then I'll pay you over the next 12 months. And I gave him, I had some equity in the building and I gave up my equity in the building because we owned the building at the time. So I gave up my equity in the building. I started paying him rent. And then I, we had the buyout number that we established at a down payment and then what I paid him over the next 12 months. Because I already had started formulating future plans that I wanted to bring another CPA in. I wanted to grow the business. I wanted to start paying this other CPA so I could get out and do my own PR efforts. And I had this whole plan of, okay, here's what I want to go do now. It's going to be me and I want to bring somebody else in that's 
a little bit younger and hungry, but is also a CPA. So I had I had plans, and then I get the phone call from Dustin Mahalik that he and Tony Rideout want to sit down and talk to me. So it just it's really kind of all all been very good, very good timing, and you know higher power looking out for me and making sure I'm in the right place at the right time. That's right. Wow. Wow. That's that's a great story. I know I told you it was only going to take, you know, a specific amount of time to do this. I don't want to be respectful of your time. So before before I get to the final questions, I do have one question about that whole process. I guess, you know, knowing what you went through to buy out Steve and then, you know, to merge your practice, looking back, is there anything you wish you would have done differently or maybe a partnership agreement or did that end up working in your favor? We had one that wasn't worth, I mean, yeah, we had one. I relied on Steve a little too much. Unfortunately, I I deferred to his, what I thought was his expertise at the time. And not that he was wrong. He wasn't wrong. I just didn't go through the exercise. I didn't make some decisions early on that I should have made. And I should have, we, I should have had us already talking about those things and asking the hard questions. They are the questions. But then again, Mark, I mean, you, you, you have to remember I mean, I was a kid, or I look back on it, and I was a kid, and I can tell you that experience, though, has made me, I can ask those hard questions to the four partners I have now, and I can look at them in the eye. I'm not scared to say, well, how are we going to handle this, whatever that is, and so, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I wish I had, Steve and I had sat down in 2010, and, and instead of waiting till. 2014 that we had said in 2010, well, I want to buy you out, Steve, and what's that going to look like? And that we had started that process a lot sooner. I mean, I wish I hadn't. We ended up getting it done. Don't get, I mean, obviously we got it done and it all took care of itself, but there was a whole heck of a lot of stress involved that I could have mitigated because the last probably 2013 going into 2014, his and my relationship suffered because of it. We don't send each other Christmas cards. And I'm not saying I have any ill will towards him. And I don't think he has any ill will towards me. I mean, we're we're still friendly. But you're talking about a friendship that I think by the end of it, we were a little, we were a little frustrated with each other. And if we had started talking earlier in the process, that may have been mitigated. Okay, okay. You know, I was thinking back on, on the process of building that firm and now merging into Right Out Barrett. You, you built a firm and, and got the clients in place and, and the revenue established, and you may have been missing something in some types of internal systems, but then you ended up merging with a much larger or, well, a, a much more well-established firm right. that I'm sure had all those systems in place. So right, right, right. It ended up working and- out. Yeah, it ended up working out. And it's pros and cons, it's good and bad. But, oh, I know I was going to say to you earlier, and I want to insert this. Steve, we we had talked about Steve from a business management, a firm management standpoint. He didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a mentor. And in that regard, he wasn't a great mentor for me from a business management standpoint. But from a professional standpoint, it was the best thing I needed at the time. As far as being able to sit down and talk through fact patterns and issues and and be creative, we had a great relationship and a great rapport that we could discuss 
and I'm, I'm, now I'm not talking about personal things in my, in my personal life. I'm talking about things professionally and with the clients and we're able to, to brainstorm and talk through things and come up with solutions for clients and, and implement those solutions. So, and that to me is what I really needed early in my career. I think that was more important that I have that type of sounding board at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's very valuable. Very valuable. Well, I end every podcast with the same four questions. And honestly, I hate to end it, but since we're, we're hitting on close <laughs> to an hour, so we probably should start to wrap it up. I, I'd like to maybe do part two because there's, there's a whole lot, maybe in a couple of years, there's a whole lot about the, the merger that you know would be interesting, I'm sure. But the final four questions. First of all, what has been your proudest moment? Personally, professionally, oh gosh, Both. how do I answer that question? Maybe not moment, series of moments, okay. series of what I don't take for granted and look back and say, holy cow, that's been, that's been really cool. And this one's going to make you laugh, Mark, because we always have our internal joke about it. But I, I was able to get a few awards in, <laughs> in my 30s for my accomplishments. And I I look back on that because several of those awards, I was nominated by my colleagues and peers in in the industry. And several of them, you know, whether it's the CPA Rising Star Award or CPA of the Year or 40 Under 40 with the Business Journal, I'm very proud of those. And I'm not, I don't display them out and and brag on myself. Don't get me wrong. I don't brag on myself. You know, I may be doing it on this podcast talking with you, Mark, but I look back on that and I, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. And I'm, I appreciate that the hard work that maybe I didn't even know I was putting in at the time was being recognized. It was recognized in some forum or another. And it, and it gives me inspiration to keep Whatever platform it is, be it here at this firm or be it with the CPA Society or another volunteer organization or be it in my church, I mean, wherever that platform is that I'll continue to be involved because really to me what, what those awards are about is, is awarding you for your servant leadership or that's, that's what those mean to me is giving back and giving back to the community and putting other people first. Not all the time, but when it's important to put other people first. I hope that answers your question. I don't know if it does or not, but that's something that sticks out in my mind that I am proud of. I don't talk about much, but I am proud of. It is quite a compliment when other people recognize that enough such that they nominate you without you even being aware and, and in your case, I mean, it, it probably, I mean, you had a small firm, so it wasn't like it was your employees doing this. It was, it was you know, other people in the community. And so that, that does mean a lot. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course. And, and frankly, the bigger, the better. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what, what can I say? What can I say? Do we want to make this a client-related mistake? Do we want to make this a personal-related mistake? <laughs> Colossal. What a big word. Colossal. Yes. I co-signed on a loan for someone ten over 10 years ago. Does that count? Does that count for stupidity? <laughs> I'm curious. How did it turn out? <laughs> I'm still paying for it. 
Oh my God! <sighs> ten years ago. Yeah, ten years ago. You know, okay. um, that 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 was a you know colossal, colossal something. Gosh, how do you answer that question? Is that really the answer I want to give? Well, that's that's a pretty good one. I'm curious when you co-signed for the loan, was it that you just didn't know better, or was it an emotional thing? It was emotional. It was okay. emotional, and I trusted the person, and I was going to get my money, or you know, I wasn't going to have to pay on the loan long term. That person was going to make something of themselves, and and okay. be able to to pay for it. And it was it was a personal decision that. I, I, you know, it's funny, I'm saying this to you, Mark, I've only ever told two other people this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, I mean, that's how embarrassed, you know, that's how embarrassed I was by it, that I did that. Here I was this accounting professional that gives advice to people telling them what to do. And then here I've made this stupid personal mistake. I definitely have, I've learned, I've definitely learned from it. <laughs> Obviously, I, I've, I've had to learn from it. And I can't let it get the best of me, and I can't let it take take me over. And then at the same time, I can't make that same stupid decision at a different point again in my life. So, Well, over 10 it, years ago, so you're talking about around 30 years old, maybe younger even? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It, was probably, it was probably 2003. So it was okay. before 2003 when I actually did it. So I, w- I would have been in my late 20s, 27. Okay. And the person deferred and deferred. It was it was related to their education. And the person deferred and deferred and deferred and I allowed them to defer and defer and deferred until I couldn't I couldn't let it I couldn't defer anymore. And well, then I'm, literally came not came after me, but and then it was going to really start affecting my credit if I didn't address it. Well, without going into more detail than you want to, I'm curious, how do you define the lesson that you learned? Is it just not the cosine period or is it deeper than that? Yeah, it's even in a personal relationship. So we have to be rational human beings on our professional, in our professional lives and in our personal lives. And we cannot make decisions. There's a better way to say that. Don't ever sign yourself up for something that you can't pay for. And it's been a good lesson for me in how I approach my personal finances and how I handle my personal finances. And that money that I have to pay every month is out of sight, out of mind. I I make a monthly payment. It's done. It's gone. And one day I won't have to make it anymore. And it'll be extra money in my pocket. And it will be money I can put aside and it's already being peeled off the top. So one day it's going to get peeled off the top and go into my savings account or go into my 401k plan or go into my savings account somewhere else. So I just, I don't, I I have decided that it's something I have to do. It's a decision I made and I'm glad that I was able to contain the mistake and that the mistake didn't, it didn't overtake my life, but you can't keep making bad mistake after bad mistake or bad decision after bad decision, not bad mistake. (laughs) you know, but bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, because those will pile up and overtake you. And I at least was able to contain it and change my thought process on how to analyze some of those, some of those personal decisions. Okay. Well, Melanie, this will be good for our listeners, because I know from social media comments that we have a a decent contingent of 
listeners at the end of their college career and just getting out of college when they're making those types of decisions about loans in their own life and possibly for friends. So this, this will be helpful. It really will. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not something I'm proud of at all, but I'm, it's been hard for my ego. It's something I've had to work through and quite frankly, let it go. And I can't allow, I could, you know, I couldn't allow it to define me or define, you know, that one very stupid decision, very stupid decision, but I couldn't allow it to define who I was as a professional or even personally. Okay. Well, we may have talked about this already, but who's been the biggest mentor or, or biggest influencer so far in your career? The biggest? Gosh. It's a series of folks. It's been Steve Porter. It's been clients. I, you know, name some of them by name, but I won't do that. It's been Dustin. It's been Tony, Kathleen, Milton, other people here in the firm that I work with, Linda, Mike. I know, I know you're going to say, Melanie, you're not giving me who the biggest, biggest person, but it's, it's been real interesting that I've been able to look back on my life and, and then professors. Okay. Because you heard me talk about how that seventh grade professor. And then when I got to college and that accounting professor and then that business strategy professor, and then there were my, some of the people I interacted with and saw in Peace Corps. So, so it's not so much in, in my world, Mark, it's not the person in my life. It's who, who are the bigger influences at that point in time. It's, is really what, and I'm cheating and not answering your question, but I am learning so much. So to come full circle with this question, these people and wonderful people here in my office at 922 Isom Road in San Antonio, Texas, I am learning so much from all these people that I have the benefit of rubbing elbows with every day. And whether they know it or whether I know it, they are affecting my life and helping me learn and develop professionally. Okay. Well, you, you sort of have a lifelong learner mentality, so that, that doesn't surprise me at all, actually. Well, and I think that's probably why that dadgum seventh grade teacher said I was going to be a teacher when I was older. And yes, <laughs> I have done some teaching. I have done some teaching in my life, so thanks to Blaze Bender and Marshall Pittman, <laughs> I've done some teaching in my life. <laughs> Well, well, last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? We've all heard it in different capacities and written different ways and enjoy the process. It's not all about the destination. And I tend to be a destination person. I'm not always a process person. And I've, I've had to tell, I, I, I have to force myself that we have these small victories we have small victories with clients, small victories with staff members, small victories with colleagues, and it's it's in those moments that we all like to high-five each other. We're in the throes of whatever we're doing. We're in the frustrations, or we're going through the daily grind, and sometimes you have to step away from it and, and laugh and laugh and high-five about what you're experiencing at that moment, and, and it's been it's been fun to you know, talking about process and not always destination, as I'm able to look back on my life and I'm able to see how far I've come and how, like I said earlier at the beginning of the call, 
how my skill set or strengths got me to this place or why I'm in this position. And I just, I look, I look forward to the next 20 to 25 years and what that's going to bring because it's going to be so much more than what the last 15 years it's going to be that, you know, times two or three. So, so yeah, enjoy the process. I mean, you got, you got to enjoy, you got to enjoy what you're doing Monday through Friday. You can't live for the weekend. You got to, you got to be excited. What Brad Hunt always says, you got to be excited on Monday morning. So that, that, that's, that's what I hang on to. That's good. That's a great thought to end this on. That enjoy the process. It's not all about the destination. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you very much, Melanie. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. If somebody wanted to find out more about the, the processes you went through, I'm assuming that probably the best way would, would be through the firm there. What, so we can get it on the record for our listeners. What's the firm website? The firm website is www.rideoutbarrett.com. And write out is it's pronounced right out. It's spelled writ out. There's no E. It's R-I-D-O-U-T-B-A-R-R-E-T-T dot com. Tony says write out, but usually when I give people my email address, I pronounce it writ out so they spell it correctly. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, I know we're, we're going into busy season and, and there's, never, there's never a perfect time. But uh, as they say these days, you've been very transparent. And I think this is going to do a lot of people lots of good. So thank you very much, Melanie. Thank you, Mark. Talk to you soon. Well, that was Melanie Geist of the CPA firm Rideout Barrett & Company in San Antonio. Like I mentioned in the beginning, Melanie was very open about her journey and definitely didn't hold back any details when it came to how her career unfolded and lessons learned all along the way. If you're looking to get to know other up-and-coming professionals in your area and live anywhere in Texas, make sure you visit our events page on the Where Accountants Go site. That's www.whereaccountantsgo.com under events. Until next week, I hope you join us again for another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting. And as I always say, there's more to come.